you're listening to this, I'm going to assume that you made it safely through. Black Friday's over. Cyber Monday's over. Oh, Small Business Saturday. That was something. Today is Giving Tuesday. Uh, and if you did not give on Giving Tuesday, I strongly encourage you to support a local charity uh, wherever you may be listening, because often, uh, because of, especially because of COVID. I read somewhere that, uh, or I heard on the news, I guess, 63% of small charities are folding this year because they haven't received the help that they need. So please consider that. You are listening to an hour of your life, and my name is Kim, and I'm getting weird looks across the table from... My name is Steve. <laughs> what else is new? I always get weird looks across the table from you. <laughs> because you, you never always... do it the same way. I like Consistent... to keep people... No, consistency. I, like to... I no. like to keep people on their toes. No, consistency. You never know what I'm going to do next. Y- yes, I do, and we talked about that no, this you week. Don't. You don't. Yeah, we you did. You think you do. Yeah, we did. This week we talked about it. About being able to complete each other's senses. And you even said, I'm so glad that because you got stuck on something and you didn't know what you're going to say. And I knew and I told you and you said, I'm so glad that you, you, you know what I'm about to say. Okay, but I mean that in good ways, not when you are... Like, you know that I'm going to kick over the table beside my chair again and break yet another glass. Or when I, so you know that I'm going to spill the coffee all over the bag that I just caught. We call it Kimness. <laughs> so next to Kim's chair, <laughs> there's a little table. And that's where she puts. Like uh, if I'm drinking something. something or, or the remote like or something or like that. Yeah. A book or maybe her glasses. And about every Two nights, Kim knocks it over. Now, so... On your you, behalf, you've only broken one glass so yeah, far. Yeah, that's true. But um, you've spilled many. I, well, and the only reason I didn't break the other one is because it was not as dainty as the glass that I broke. Yes. Um, it, and it's not, it's not like I'm... This is not a big, heavy table. It's like a cheap little metal thing that weighs maybe a pound and a half. So it's very easy to knock over. And how many times have I knocked it over? How many times do you sit in that chair? I sit in it all day long. No, you do not. <laughs> you liar. And your table next to your chair is this big solid wooden like monstrosity. Because I have all the remote controls for the TV. <sighs> and and uh, let's see, what are we, how many remotes do we have to have? We have to have one for the TV, one yeah. for the cable, yeah. one for Roku. Yep. Except we have downloaded the app. But still, you, have to have, you still have to have the... Uh, Roku to make it yeah. work right. What? Where did we even get off on this tangent? Hi, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to an hour of your life. It Today snowed. we're talking about TVs. We're not talking about TVs at all. It did snow. We got our first snowfall of the season. Accumulating snow. Yeah, I think it did. It yeah. has you know sprinkled the snow here about, and there, but about, we got about three inches. It suddenly got cold, like. Very suddenly, it went from oh, I don't know. I would say probably forties, fifties. No, it was it was it was sixty degrees because the day before it snowed, I cut the grass, and I went out in the jeep and looked at it, and it was uh, it was sixty degrees. Now I think it's like it's about thirty right now. Oh, thirty. Well, you know, whatever. Anyway, today we are, uh, you know, after taking a break. With Lawn Chair Larry last week, we're back to the the hard hitters that you all know and love. But we've made it to J- Jumanji level whatever now of the COVID. The is in sight. Yeah, there is. Five there, of them, I think. Yeah, but there's a light at the end of the tunnel here. Now the big question is, will you take the vaccine? Do you trust it? All I can say is follow your heart. Not the politics. Yeah, I'm interested. Follow I'm, the science in your heart and not the politics. I'm interested. Um, let, let us know if you end up taking the vaccine or not taking the vaccine. And if you don't take the vaccine, uh, let us know why. I think the most common answer is not anything to do with politics. It's, it's people feel like it's been rushed, which I am not a medical professional, so I don't know. Um, I haven't done enough reading to know whether it's been rushed or not. I honestly don't think that it's going to be available to the majority of the American public for quite some time um, because... Mm, our governor said by May, 
all Ohioans should be vaccinated that want to get vaccinated. Oh, really? Yes. Well, quite some time. I mean, May is still five months away. So keep social distancing, wash your hands, and wear your mask. Thank you, first line responders. Okay, so today we are talking. Oh, yeah. <laughs> about man, usually I'm the one that gets it's gonna off topic. be it's gonna be one of those days. I'm just it is. I'm gonna have to yep. rein you back in a bazillion times. Okay, today we're talking about legendary kidnapping, quote unquote victim question mark. Patty Hurst, aka she doesn't like to be called Patty. She likes to be called Patricia. So I, for one, am going to try to respect those wishes. Um you hope because I I don't I don't and we'll get into it about whether or not we believe her story or, or what, but um, you know, even if you're I, I still feel like we should honor people's wishes, even if they're convicted criminals about what they wish to be called. So Yeah, but wait till we get to the end of the show. She is no longer a convicted criminal. Uh, well I'm saying, but if they are convicted even if they are convicted criminals, okay. we should still honor their wishes. All right, so on with the show. The Hearst family became uber-rich thanks to patriarch William Randolph Hearst, who was a newspaper tycoon famous for his brand of yellow journalism. Yellow journalism. We have done episodes about that. We have. Check out episode 23 if you want to know more about yellow journalism. Um, But basically, if you don't feel like going back to check out episode 23, yellow journalism is essentially the old-school version of fake news. Uh, So it was um, just kind of a, a... very extremely biased and so, semi-slanderous way of portraying so we're, things. we're saying that the terminology fake news now has actually been around. The terminology is, is new. new. The concept is very old. I don't... That don't was, worry about it. Okay. Uh, now, don't think that the Hearst family was poor before all of this, before William Randolph Hearst came on the scene. Quite the contrary, they're pretty old money with lots of connections. In 1903, William Randolph Hearst became a member of the House of Representatives, and then he unsuccessfully ran for president in 1904, president of these United States. He also ran for mayor of New York City and governor of New York State. Hearst had five sons with uh, his twin, Randolph, or uh, with... He had five sons with his twin? No, <laughs> no he had five sons with... Uh, twin son Randolph Apperson being the fourth of the five. Randolph led a fairly uneventful life as rich folks' lives go until his daughter Patricia entered the world. Now, Patricia Campbellhurst was born on February 20th, 1954. She was the third of five daughters. So just like her granddad had a bunch of boys, her dad had a bunch of girls. And she led that sort of gilded life that you would expect the child of a media magnate to, to live. If her story were to be told today, she'd likely be an Instagram influencer or a Kardashian or something along those lines. Okay, I just got to say here, old money or new money, I really wouldn't care. Right, it all spends the same. Um, so it just is how, how snooty are you with it, I guess. So, Patricia attended the top schools, and when it was time for college, she ended up at UC Berkeley in 1974. Uh, And we're going to get into this a little bit. Now, the pretty 19-year-old was living with her fiancé, Stephen Weed, a Catholic school teacher, which is interesting that she she was shacking up with a Catholic school teacher. My understanding is that that's probably frowned upon by the Catholic Church. Um, But the fact that that uh, Patricia chose Berkeley is interesting because it wasn't exactly a hotbed of political conservatism. In 1966, then-FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover claimed that, quote, agitators on other campuses take their lead from activities which occur at Berkeley. And we should do an episode on J. Edgar. We should. Ooh, there's some an interesting guy. Probably, probably two or three part series. Yeah, we might do that. We maybe can do that next week. Anyway, the roots of this activism at Berkeley are generally attributed to the free speech movement, which was a long-term sit-in on the campus in 1964 and 65. So essentially, the group and its thousands of student supporters were protesting that the university wouldn't allow them to express their political and academic views on campus, which they said then restricted their federal rights. So as part of this, there were all kinds of sit-ins and demonstrations and meetings and marches for racial equality and an end to the Vietnam War, among other things. 
So in the spring of 1969, the university had bought out and demolished a block of low-cost housing with plans to build a dormitory, but the land stood empty for about a year. It was muddy, um, there were mosquitoes breeding. Students and community members took over the land, planted grass, they planted flowers and vegetables, and over time, the students developed a relationship to what became known as People's Park. However, I know, isn't that such a nice story? But the chancellor of the university wasn't happy about it and ordered that, quote, further unauthorized development would be stopped. The conflict came to a head on May 15, 1969, what would come to be called Bloody Thursday. Police ejected park supporters from the lot, student anti-war activists, and the student body president-elect Dan Siegel giving a speech suggested, let's go down there and take the park. And the 3,000 students assembled in Sproul Plaza took him at his word, heading to the park before he could finish his speech. In the encounter between the mob and police, 32 people were injured, one was blinded, one person was killed. In response, Governor Reagan sent 2,700 National Guardsmen into Berkeley to restore order and banned any assembly of more than three people. At one point, a National Guard helicopter was sent over the campus spraying tear gas, And eventually, the school backed down and allowed the park to remain, but today it's up again for student housing, interestingly enough. So all of this is essentially just to set the tone of what life was like on and around the Berkeley campus at the time that Ms. Hurst was there studying art history. Art history. Yep. Okay, well, we can't talk about Patricia Hurst without talking about Donald uh, DeFries. He was born in Cleveland, Ohio, to, an, to African-American parents. Now, I mentioned African-American because that's going to be a key part in the formation of the Symbionese Liberation Army. It's a mouthful. And, and what their goals are and what their political movements are all about. So, he was born on November 15, 1943, as the eldest of eight children. His mother was a nurse, which was probably helpful because his father was an extremely violent man. In three separate incidents, Donald was a child. When Donald was a child, his father broke his arms as a form of punishment. Now, that's... That's pretty harsh. That's, that's pretty harsh, right? That's not even pretty harsh. That's, that's real harsh. That's abuse, yeah. yeah I, I, can't imagine, abuse. I can't imagine ever being angry enough at a child to intentionally and methodically break both their arms as punishment. No. I mean, it's one thing, I guess, not that I'm condoning it, obviously, but it's one, I can understand it a little bit more if he was in a fit of rage and accidentally broke the kid's arms. No. But if he, I'm, no. like I said, I'm not no. condoning it, no. but but that is a thing that happens, but it's a whole different level if you are not in a fit of rage and you intentionally break. Well, he may have been in a fit of rage when he did that. But if it's as a form of punishment, oh. I, would, I would think that that's not a fit of rage. Okay. That's intentional. Oh, whichever. Fit of rage, you need to be able to control yourself. Oh, well, yeah. Not. I'm not, like yeah, I said, I'm not, con- yeah, I'm not condoning there, it. Yeah. No, I'm not condoning it at all. I'm just saying that that is something that happens. When people get When people in, okay. get it. Yes, yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad you clarified that. Yeah. Or otherwise, I was going to have to do it. <laughs> I was going to do a whole lot of editing. Yeah, on no, this, no, no, no. Don't, show. don't ever get mad at a kid and break their arms. <laughs> so he dropped out of school in ninth grade at age fourteen, and he ran away from home. He moved to Buffalo, New York, where he lived with the Reverend William L. Foster, who was a fundamentalist minister, and his family. He became became a street gang member in Buffalo, and his foster father would say that. He was a get-up-and-go kid. He had a heart that was as big as a house, but some of the boys he used to hang around with, I don't care for. You just knew they were 99 and 44 100% bad. It's a very specific now, number. DeFries, and I have questions about this. So DeFries was sent to the state reformatory in Elmira, New York, for stealing parking meters and for stealing a car. He didn't fit in well, and he refused to join any prison gangs or affiliate with anybody. So if he was a runaway and he was only 14 years old, when he was caught, I don't understand why he wasn't sent back to his parents. I don't think that, I don't know if he was 14 at that point. He ran away when he was 14. Okay. But I don't know if Yeah, that wasn't, was, that wasn't yeah, clear. Yeah, so. I, I don't know that he, I think he was probably a little older when he was yeah, arrested. Yeah, maybe. Because following his release from prison, DeFreeze, 
moved to uh, the Newark area in 1963. He married Gloria Thomas, and they had three children. She had three children from a previous marriage. DeFries and Thomas had three children of their own. In 1964, his wife had him arrested for desertion, but apparently they got back together because in 1965, DeFries moved with his family to California where they settled in Los Angeles. He said that the worries of trying to support the children engulfed him. He wrote, I just couldn't take it anymore. I was slowly becoming a nothing. Well, that little stint in Elmira wasn't Donald's only run-in with the law. In 1964, police stopped a freeze while he was hitchhiking on the San Bernardino Freeway near West Covina, California, and they found a tear gas pencil bomb, sharpened, a sharpened butter knife, and a sawed-off rifle in a suitcase. In 1965, he was arrested for firing a gun in the basement of his home, although those charges were later dropped. In 1967, the police stopped DeFreeze for running a red light on his bicycle. Oh, oh my gosh. only people did that now. Yeah. That's one of our pet peeves yeah. is bicyclists who think that, the, you know, who choose to ride on the road as if they Which were a car. Which is fine. We totally support you, but if you're going to do that, you need to honor the laws. You need laws. to stop at the stop sign like everybody else so yes, I don't hit you. exactly. Yeah. So good on the police for arresting him. The police said that when he was searched, they found a homemade bomb in his pocket and in the basket of the bicycle, another bomb and a pistol. DeFreeze said that he found them as he was trying to sell them because of his family's needs. He was given three years probation. His probation officer saw the, the, the metaphorical dark clouds on the horizon and wrote, The difficulties which the defendant has encountered in his life are real and serious. He feels his responsibilities, deep, he feels his responsibilities deeply and is overcome when he cannot meet them. He appears to have a warm relationship with his wife and children. The type of behavior encountered in the present offense appears to be the defendant's way of compensating for feelings of inadequacy and powerlessness. The defendant is potentially dangerous if he again encounters such severe threatening circumstances as if as he was encountering at the time of the offense. So just like those bombs that he's carrying around, he's just waiting he, to go off. He's, I think this is a failure in the entire justice system because yeah. he's been arrested for... He's carrying bombs, and he's getting probation. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Other probation reports describe a schizoid personality with strong schizophrenic potential who had a fascination with firearms and explosives. However, instead of being jailed, DeFries continued to receive probationary sentences for various crimes, including kidnapping and attempted burglary. Okay, that's, that's something, pretty Something's serious. wrong here. Yeah, okay. this Something's is, wrong with the system. Okay. Right. In November 1969, Donald was finally sent to prison after a gunfight with police following the theft of a $1,000 cashier's check. While he was in prison at Vacaville Prison, DeFries joined the Black Cultural Association, a group with uh, contact at the University of California, Berkeley, through Professor Colston Westbrook. Through this group, Berkeley students were allowed to visit the prison to help prisoners with educational and political discussions. People outside of the university also attended through this organization. DeFries met with some far-left radicals who were working as volunteers in the prison, and he was converted to their political ideology. So he sounds like he was pretty much ripe for the picking. Yeah, he was... Yeah, he was... He, he, yeah, he was there. He was a little bit of a, a loner, I think, but at, at the same time, you know, he needed... Somewhere to fit, and it sounds like radicals were the way to go. Yep. So DeFries diverged from the Black Cultural Association in order to set up his own small group, Unisite. Two of the ethnically white American radical visitors who joined this group were Willie Wolf and Russ Little. In addition, a former Black Panther and an inmate known by the name of Taro Wheeler was also in this group. This is believed to have been the beginnings of the Symbionese Liberation Army, which we'll hear about more in just a little bit. Now, Willie Wolf especially is going to come back into our story, so, so pay attention to his name. In 1972, DeFries was transferred to the Soledad Prison in California, but he escaped in only three months. He was taken in by Patricia Soltisic, who was a friend of some white friends of his. He lived with her for several months, 
and the two founded the SLA, or the Symbionese Liberation Army. Now, it's interesting... Now, Symbia is not a real country. No, no, it's not. Okay. Uh, it's interesting to note that Donald DeFries was the only African-American of the SLA, and he also, you know, was the founder. In his own words, the name Symbionese is taken from the word symbiosis, and we define its meaning as a body of dissimilar bodies and organisms living in deep and loving harmony and partnership in the best interest of all within the body. So on the surface, it maybe seemed like an okay idea, like African-American, white folks, rich, poor, everybody's living together in this one harmonious body that is doing what is best for all mankind. But that's not the case here. That's, that's not what happened. Their symbol is a seven-headed cobra, which is reflective of the seven principles of Kwanzaa. Uh, now, for those who don't know, those principles are Umoja, which is unity, Kuji Chigulia, which is self-determination, Ujima, which stands for collective work and responsibility, Ujamaa, which is cooperative economics, Nia, which is purpose, and Kuumba, creativity, and Imani, faith. So all good things. But on November 6th, 1973, in Oakland, California, two members of the SLA killed school superintendent Marcus Foster and badly wounded his deputy, Robert Blackburn, as the two men left an Oakland school meeting. Doesn't exactly sound like the principles they were trying to project. No, not at all. They're, I mean, I suppose this is a collective, you know, Ujima, the collective work and responsibility but I'm going to guess that the people who founded Kwanzaa and its principles did not view killing superintendents as a form of celebrating that collective work and responsibility. The hollow point bullets that were used to kill Foster had been packed with cyanide, and we're going to see this again uh, in several SLA attacks. Now, although Foster had been the first black school superintendent in the history of Oakland, the SLA had condemned him for his supposed plan to introduce identification cards into Oakland schools, calling him fascist. Now, in fact, Foster had opposed the use of identification cards in his schools, and his plan was a watered-down version of other similar proposals, but like many radical groups, the SLA was operating on half-truths and whole lies. And it sounds like they're equal opportunity haters here. They are, yeah. They didn't care if you were black, white, whoever. Just like they were equal opportunity recruiters, they were equal opportunity killers. SLA members Joseph Ramiro and Russell Litter, Little were later arrested and charged with Foster's murder, although Russell Little claimed that Donald DeFreeze was the one who actually delivered the fatal shot. All right, that's what I'd be claiming, too. <laughs> In response to the arrests of Ramiro and Little, the SLA began planning their next action— the kidnapping of an important figure to negotiate the release of their imprisoned members. The plan was to take place on the full moon of January 17th, but the group didn't actually go ahead with their plan until February 4th, 1974. At around 9 o'clock in the evening, there was a knock on the door of apartment number 4 at 2603 Benvenue Street in Berkeley, California. In burst a group of men and women with their guns drawn. They grabbed a surprise 19-year-old Patricia Hurst, beat up her fiancé, Stephen, threw her in the trunk of the car, and drove off. Witnesses reported seeing a struggling hearse being carried away blindfolded, and she lost consciousness during the kidnapping. Neighbors who came out to the street were forced to take cover after the kidnappers fired their guns to cover their escape. Three days later, the SLA announced in a letter to a Berkeley radio station that it was holding Hearst as a prisoner of war. Four days later, the SLA demanded that the Hearst family give $70 million in foodstuffs to every needy person from Santa Rosa to Los Angeles, and then they would be willing to begin negotiations for the return of Patricia. Desperate for the return of his daughter, Randolph Hearst er, hesitantly gave away some $2 million worth of food. The SLA called this inadequate. Remember, they were after $70 million, not two. Uh, And then they asked for $6 million more. So they really did negotiate down quite a bit. They went from $70 million to $8 million in their ransom demands. The Hearst Corporation said it would donate the additional sum if Patricia was released unharmed. Well, that didn't happen. And so right now in the story, we're going to have to kind of time hop and go back a little bit to catch up with what's going on right here. 
So let's look in a little bit more detail at the events of the kidnapping and the controversy of what happened after the kidnapping that made this story even more interesting. According to Hearst's later testimony, that'd be Patricia's later testimony, she was held for a week in a closet, blindfolded, uh, with her hands tied, during which SLA founder and leader Donald DeFries uh, repeatedly threatened her with death. She was let out only for meals, and she was remained blindfolded the whole time, and eventually she started to join in in the political discussions. Now, that's kind of important for what we're going to be talking about a little mm-hmm. bit later, too, right there. So she was given a flashlight to read by. Much of her reading was SLA political tracts that she was forced to memorize. Hearst was kept in the closet for weeks when she was told by DeFreeze that the War Council had decided or was thinking about killing me, and this is Patricia talking here, killing me or me staying with them, and that I better start thinking about that as a possibility. Hearst said, I accommodated my thoughts to coincide with theirs. In a different account, Hearst said that she'd been offered the choice of being released or joining the SLA. So she is a little mixed up on her stories here, it sounds she, like. She's a little bit mixed up, but consider where she's been. So that's okay. I'm going right. to come out in trial later. Okay. When asked for her decision, Hearst said she wanted to stay and fight with the SLA. The blindfold was removed, allowing her to see her captors for the first time. After this, she was given daily lessons on her duties, especially with weapons drills and trained with weapons and guns and stuff like that so she could take part in the events about to happen. And sharpened butter knives. Yes. Angela Atwood told Hearst that the others thought that she should know what sexual freedom was like in the unit. According to her lawyer, Hearst was allegedly raped by William Willie Wolf and later by DeFreeze. Now, remember, Willie Wolf was one of the guys that was in prison when the SLA was in its infancy um, and who had connections with the people at Berkeley. On April 3rd, 1974, two months after she was abducted, Hearst announced on an audio tape that she had joined the SLA and had taken the name Tanya, which was inspired by the nom de guerre of Hede Tamara Bunky Biter. That's a mouthful. Uh, yeah, I'm glad you had that one, not I, me. I don't know who that person is, but I do know who Che Guevara is, and um, that is who inspired this name Tanya, uh, because this this Tanya person was associated with Che Guevara. On April fifteenth, nineteen seventy four, Hearst was recorded on surveillance video wielding an M one carbine while robbing the Sunset District branch of the Hibernia Bank at. 1450 Noriega Street in San Francisco. She identified herself under the pseudonym of Tanya. Now, also, I do want to mention at this point that we have not been using everybody else's names, but everybody in the SLA, including Donald DeFreeze, had these other names that they've given themselves. Um, But uh, honestly, we kind of thought that was a little silly, so we just decided to use their names. And most of them I can't pronounce. Most of them are kind of crazy names anyway. So um, two men entered this bank while the robbery was occurring and they were shot and wounded. According to testimony at her trial, a witness thought that Hearst had been several paces behind the others when running to the getaway car, which I also think is really interesting because there, in my mind there's a question of was she several paces behind everybody else because she was hoping to get caught Was she several paces behind everybody else because she was not clear on whether what she was doing is right or wrong, or Or, was it just coincidental? Or maybe she's several paces behind because the other people are scared and she can't run as fast. It could be any number of things. Um, But Attorney General William B. Saxby said that Hearst was a common criminal and not a reluctant participant in the bank robbery. Prosecutor James L. Browning Jr. said that her participation in the robbery may have been voluntary, contrasting with an earlier comment in which he said that she might have been coerced into taking part. Now, that's really interesting because James L. Browning Jr., as I mentioned, is going to be prosecuting her for in this case later. So he's a flip-flopper. The FBI agent heading the investigation said the SLA members were photographed pointing guns at Hearst during the robbery, and a grand jury indicted her, though, in June 1974 for that robbery. On May 16, 1974, um, the manager at Mills... This is happening really fast. It is. All of it, yeah. I mean, it took place over just a couple of months. 
On May 16, 1974, the manager at Mills Sporting Goods in Inglewood, California, observed a minor theft by William Harris, who had been shopping with his wife, Emily, while Hearst awaited across the road in a van. The manager and an employee followed Harris out and confronted him. There was a scuffle, and the manager uh, restrained Harris when a pistol fell out of his waistband. Now, Hearst grabbed another gun, discharged the entire magazine of an automatic carbine. Carbine? Carbine. Carbine, sorry. Carbine, carbine, tomato, <laughs> tomato. <laughs> into the Caribbean, over- <laughs> Caribbean. Into the overhead storefront, causing the manager to dive behind a light post. He tried to shoot back, but Hearst started aiming closer. Now, I'm just imagining this all playing out in my mind. This is like a scene out of a movie. You got the managers firing and Patty Hearst is firing. And there the are movies guy, about this. I, it's crazy. We could watch that we tonight. We should. That's what we should do. Uh, Hearst and the Harris couple hijacked two cars and abducted the owners. One was a young man who found Patricia Hearst so personable that he was reluctant to report the incident. That's pretty amazing. If somebody hides or carjacks me, I'm going to turn them in. Sorry, I don't care how nice you are. He testified at the trial to her discussing the effectiveness of those cyanide-tipped bullets that they like and repeatedly asking if he was okay. So, again, like, she seems, I don't know, There's she's very uh, multifaceted. This is a very complicated story. It is very complicated. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about it toward the end of the episode, but... Um, police had surrounded the main base of the SLA before the three returned, so they hid elsewhere. This is uh, Patricia and the, the Harris couple. The six SLA members inside the hideout died of a gunfight with police and resulting fire. Oops. Yep. It was initially thought that Hearst had also died in the fire, but obviously she didn't. She was just hiding out. Well, so with all this going on, California and the feds issued an arrest warrant for uh, Hearst, actually, arrest warrants for Hearst on several felonies, including two counts of kidnapping. Later, you'll notice there are going to be two trials. So one's a federal trial for federal charges and one's a state charges. So the bank robbery and kidnapping are going to be federal and the, the little local robbery. The carjacking? The carjacking. That's, okay. that's going to be state stuff. Gotcha. Yeah, so those are all federal crimes. So that's that's why the, the FBI and the California's involved it's with like this. It's like when OJ d- killed his wife and there was a federal trial and then there was a civil trial and he was found not guilty in the federal trial. No. Or the state trial. But the state then, trial. But then he was found guilty in the civil trial. We kind of, but <laughs> kidnapping and bank robbery are federal offenses. Oh. I, yeah. Well, I mean, and not, same, same idea. So, the, I mean, the families could have sued her civilly too. So I there's, if they did. No. Oh. They didn't. Okay. Emily Harris went to a Berkeley rally to commemorate the deaths of Angela Atwood. And, ooh, wasn't one of Charlie's girls named Atwood? No, you're you're talking about Charlie Manson? Yeah. No, I think you're thinking of Susan Atkins. Oh, yeah. Okay. Not not Atwood, Atkins. Okay. Anyway, Anyway, Angela Atwood and other founding members of the SLA who had died during the police siege. Harris recognized Atwood's acquaintance as Kathy Solaya, among the radicals whom she'd known from other civil rights groups. Solaya introduced the three fugitives to Jack Scott, an athletics coach and radical, and he agreed to provide help and money. So I would think that if you are on the run, that going to a a rally, a public rally, uh, is after the deaths of the people with whom you are affiliated is probably not a good idea, but I for them think, it actually worked out really well. Yeah, but I would think it'd be under observation by Yeah, I would think so too, but it worked out for them. So so anyway, Hearst helped make some improved explosive devices. We now call those IEDs. These were used in two unsuccessful attempts to kill police officers during, 19, during August 1975, where one of the devices failed to detonate. Marked money found in the apartment where she was arrested linked Hearst to the SLA in the armed robbery of the Crocker National Bank in Carmichael, California. She was the getaway driver for that robbery. I wonder if it's because she hesitated at the last bank robbery and was too slow getting out the Maybe. door. So they're yeah, like, you just wait in the car. You're too slow. You just drive the car. Yeah. But drive the car fast. <laughs> so, so Myrna... Upsall, who was at the bank making deposits, was shot dead by a masked Emily Harris. 
This made Hearst at risk for felony murder charges, but she could also testify as a witness against Harris for what now is a capital mm, offense. So she's got an out. Well, yeah. Potentially. Potentially. On September 18th, 1975, Hearst was arrested in a San Francisco apartment with Wendy Yoshimura, another SLA member, by San Francisco Police Inspector Timothy F. Casey and his partner, Police Officer Lawrence R. Pizarro, and FBI Special Agent Thomas J. Padden and his partner. So, again, a state and federal thing going on right so here. So, I'm. can we back up for a minute? Yeah. Uh, so, she was convicted, or no, she was at trial in 1974, correct? Um. Most likely, from what I can read with this, like I said, it's complicated. She was, it she sounds was like a, she was indicted. Yeah. She so she in, may have been out on bail. Okay, or, so she was indicted. She had committed the robbery at Mel's Sporting Goods in May, and that's when she um, that's when she got in the shootout and when she stole the cars. And then in June, she was indicted for the bank robbery. But now, almost a year later, or a little over a year September later, actually, in 75, September of 75, she's arrested. She's out, I guess, on bail. I'm, I'm guessing she's out on bail. And arrested. So this, at what point, so California now, must have had some really liberal That's what I'm thinking. And, and standards out there for... This is, so she's still hanging out with SLA people almost a year after she was indicted by the grand jury when she tried to say that she was quote unquote kidnapped and held against her will. But Unless she, we just misread the dates, but, but I don't think so. Still, no, I don't think so. So, but she's still hanging out with SLA members. Yeah. It's, it's complicated. Very suspicious to yeah. me. While being booked into jail, Hearst listed her occupation as urban gorilla mm-hmm. and asked her attorney to relay the following message. Tell everybody that I'm smiling, that I feel free and strong, and I send my greetings and love to all the sisters and brothers out there. Oh, that's so nice. <sighs> At the time of her arrest, Hearst weight had dropped to 87 pounds, and she was described by Dr. Margaret Singer in October 1975 as a low IQ low-effect zombie. Shortly after her arrest, signs of trauma were recorded. Her IQ was measured at 112, where before it had been previous, previously it had been 130. There was a huge gap in her memory memory regarding her pre-Tanya life. She was smoking heavily and had nightmares. Without a mental illness or defect, a person is considered to be fully responsible for any criminal action not done under duress which is defined as a clear and present threat of death or serious injury. For Hearst to have been acquitted on grounds of being brainwashed, this would have been a completely unprecedented thing in, in the courts, as it had never been done before. I definitely have feelings on this. Psychiatrist Louis Jolin West, a professor at University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, was appointed by the court in his capacity as a brainwashing expert and worked without a fee. Oh, that was nice of him. After the trial, he wrote a newspaper article asking President Carter to release Hearst from prison. Hearst wrote in her memoir, Every Secret Thing in 1982, I spent 15 hours going over my SLA experiences with Robert J. Lifton of Yale University. Lifton, who was an author of several books on coercive persuasion and thought reform, pronounced me a classic case which met all the psychological criteria of a coerced prisoner. If I had reacted differently, that would have been suspect, he said. Like I said, I have, uh, I have some thoughts. It's, it's complicated. We'll, we'll get into it, though. Yeah. After some weeks, Hearst repudiated her SLA alliance. Uh, her first lawyer, Terrence Hallinan, had... Yeah, a- she was caught. <laughs> her first lawyer had advised Hearst not to talk to anyone, including <laughs> psychiatrists. I guess she never heard snitches get stitches. Oh. But she'll find out. Terrence Hallinan advocated a defense of involuntary intoxication, which basically he was trying to say that the SLA had given her drugs that affected her judgment and recollection, which is why she had gaps in her memory about her pre-Tanya life, and she just wasn't herself, essentially. I'd be telling anything they wanted to hear before I'm going to jail. So I mentioned OJ earlier because, I mean, not just because, um, but... 
Terrence Hallinan was replaced by OJ's attorney, F. Lee Bailey. Of course, obviously, this is many years before, but F. Lee Bailey asserted a, no, a defense of coercion or duress affecting intent at the time of offense. This was similar to the brainwashing defense, which Hallinan had warned was not a defense in law. So she had F. Lee Bailey. She did. So she had part of the OJ's dream team. She just she needed did. Johnny Cochran here. I she I mean, well I mean it's um, all California. It, right. I Johnny Cochran, I think, is probably close to the same age as Patty Hearst. So he may have not been oh, I'm sorry, Patricia Hearst. So he may have not been uh, a thing yet. Um, but Patricia gave long interviews to various psychiatrists again, which was something that her first lawyer told her not to do. She alone was arraigned for the Hibernia Bank robbery. The trial commenced on January 15th, 1976. Let me just say, if I ever get arrested for anything, I want you to hire the dream team here. Well, I want F. some L- of Ethley Bailey, I think, is dead. Oh, I don't think Ethley oh. Bailey's dead. No, you're right. No, you're right. Okay, so Ethley Bailey is not dead. He's super old, though. And one of the Kardashian... Family members, he's dead, right? Robert Kardashian was a member of the Dream Team. He's dead. Johnny Cochran is dead. He died in 2005. Well, give um, me F. Lee Bailey. Robert Shapiro, let's see. He's still alive. Uh, he's pretty old, too. Oh, he was born in 1942. That means experienced. He, he, he's pretty old. Uh, you don't want them, though. Oh, yeah, you do, because they, yeah. They're the because defense. they they were the ones that found him. They got him freed on the state trial. So yeah, yeah. So you can have some of the dream team. Anyway, Judge Oliver Jesse Carter. Now this is going to get a little confusing because of the Carters, because President Carter gets involved later on. But this is Judge Carter. This is a very confusing story. Judge Carter happened to be a professional acquaintance of a junior member of the prosecution team, which seems suspicious. But he ruled that her taped and written statements after the bank robbery, while she was a fugitive with the SLA members, were voluntary. But he did not allow expert testimony that stylistic analysis indicated that the Tanya statements in writing were not wholly composed by Hearst. He did permit the prosecution to introduce statements and actions that she made long after the Hibernia robbery as evidence of her state of mind at the time of the robbery. And he also allowed into evidence a recording made by jail authorities of a friend's jail visit with Hearst in which she used profanities and spoke of her radical and feminist beliefs. However, he did not allow tapes of psychiatrist uh, Lewis West's interviews of hers to be heard by the jury. So he's definitely cherry-picking what evidence well, is allowed and not allowed. Judge Carter was described as resting his eyes, I call that falling asleep, during testimony favorable to the defense by West and others. Which, how I don't understand how you can fall asleep during any of this. This is exciting, interesting stuff. Okay. But he's also really old. Yeah, according to her testimony... Her captors had demanded she appear enthusiastic during the robbery and warned she would pay with her life for any mistake. How do you fall asleep during that? Her defense lawyer, F. Lee Bailey, showed the court photographs showing that SLA members, including Camilla Hall, had pointed guns at Hearst during the robbery. In reference to the shooting at Mel's Sporting Goods store and her decision to not escape, Hearst testified that she was instructed throughout her captivity on what to do in an emergency. She said in one class in particular, she they had a situation similar to the store manager's, manager's detention of the Harrises. Hearst testified that when it happened, I didn't even think. I just did it. She reacted. If I had not done it and, and they had not been able to get away, they would have killed me. So, okay, in her defense here... This is, it's like what you guys do, what you did in the army. You drill and drill and drill and practice, and practice, practice. She, she reacted so to that you, we would call it a battle drill, and she exactly. reacted to you it. You reacted yeah. exactly how you're going to be trained. Testifying for the prosecution, Dr. Herod Kazal said, Hearst had been a rebel in search of a cause, and her participation in the Hibernia robbery had been an act of free will. Prosecutor James L. Browning Jr. asked the other psychiatrist testifying for the prosecution Dr. Joel Fort, if Hearst was in fear or great bodily injury during the robbery, to which he answered no. Mm. But Bailey angrily objected. Hmm. 
Fort assessed Hurst as amoral and said she had voluntarily had sex with Wolf and DeFreeze, which accusations Hurst both denied, both inside and outside of the courtroom. Prosecutor Browning tried to show that writings by Hurst indicated her testimony had misrepresented her interactions with Wolf. She said she had been writing the SLA version of events and she had been punched in the face by William Harris when she refused to be more effusive about what she regarded as sexual abuse by Wolf. Hmm. Judge Carter allowed testimony from the prosecution psychiatrist about Hearst's early sexual experiences, although these had occurred years before her kidnapping and the bank robbery. In court, Hearst made a poor impression and appeared lethargic. An Associated Press report attributed her state of appearance to drugs she was given by jail doctors. Bailey was strongly criticized for his decision to put Hearst on the stand and then having her repeatedly declining to answer questions. According to Alan Dershowitz, Bailey was wrong-footed by the judge who had appeared to indicate that she would have Fifth Amendment privileges. Now, for our overseas friends, the Fifth Amendment to the United States Constitution says you can't be made to testify against yourself. So that's, that's where that comes from. The jury would not be present for some of her testimony or would be instructed not to draw inferences on matters subsequent to the Hiberian bank charge for which she was being tried, but he changed his mind. So this judge is super shady, and also there might be some degree of victim blaming here with trotting out Patricia Hearst's sexual history and, you know, it was she you know, an attempt possibly to portray her as somewhat of a a whore or whatever. Now, after a few months, Hearst provided information to the authorities, not under oath, because sworn testimony could have been used to convict her of SLA activities. After that... Snitches get stitches. Yep. A bomb exploded at Hearst Castle in February 1976 after she had testified that Wolf had raped her. Emily Harris... Remember, she was one of the ones that was in the shootout where Patricia didn't escape. She gave a magazine interview from jail alleging that Hearst keeping a trinket given to her by Willie Wolf was an indication that she'd been in a romantic relationship with him. Now, Hearst said that she'd kept the stone carving because she thought it was a pre-Columbian artifact of archaeological significance. And she was rich. She should have known this stuff. Which, that's the weirdest reason I can think of to keep something that somebody gave you. But whatever. Uh, she, the prosecutor, James Browning Jr. used Harris's interpretation of the item. And some jurors said they later regarded the carving, which Browning waved in front of them as powerful evidence that Hearst was lying. In a closing prosecution statement that hardly even acknowledged that she'd been kidnapped, meaning Patricia Hearst and held captive, prosecutor Browning suggested that Hearst had taken part in the bank robbery without coercion. He later became a judge and also suggested to the jury that as a female SLA member, uh, since she was a feminist, that the female SLA members would not have allowed Patricia Hearst to be raped, which to me is a good point. In her autobiography, Hearst expressed disappointment with what she saw as Bailey's lack of focus in the crucial end stage of her trial. She described him as having the appearance of someone with a hangover and spilling water down the front of his pants while making a disjointed closing argument. Bailey's final statement to the court was, but simple application of the rules, I think, will yield one decent result, and that is there is not anything close to proof beyond a reasonable doubt that Patricia Hearst wanted to be a bank robber. What you know, and you know in your hearts to be true, is beyond dispute. There was talk about her dying, and she wanted to survive. Yep. On March 20th, 1976, Hearst was convicted of bank robbery and using a firearm during the commission of a felony. She was given the maximum sentence possible of 35 years imprisonment pending a reduction at final sentence hearing, which Carter declined to specify. (laughs) Probably a good thing for her because... Before the uh, the sentencing hearing, Judge Carter died. Oh, so that sentencing the sentencing hearing was passed on to Judge William Horsley Ork Jr. He gave her seven years imprisonment, committing a commenting that rebellious young people who, for whatever reason, become revolutionaries and voluntarily commit criminal acts will be 
punished. I have so many questions about our legal system here too. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm, like, well, did this? Do you? Do you? I wonder. Did this judge? This new judge? I'm sure it was covered in the press and stuff, but how? I, I wonder what things he was given that would allow him to to give this sentence since the old judge who had heard the case died. Well, he probably had the court transcripts and reviewed it. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah. So while in prison, Hearst suffered a collapsed lung and had to have emergency surgery. This was only the beginning of a series of medical problems for her while she was in prison. This collapsed lung prevented her from testifying against the Harrises on their 11 charges of robbery, kidnapping, and assault. She was also arraigned for those charges, too. She was kept in solitary confinement for security reasons. She was granted bail for an appeal hearing in November 1976 on the condition that she was on protected bond. So she was out on bond. I guess her dad put up a lot of money that would have been forfeit. Be right, yeah. Her father hired dozens of bodyguards. Mm. Superior Court Judge Talbot Callister gave her probation on the sporting goods store charge when she pleaded no contest saying that she saying that he believed that she'd been subject to coercion amounting to torture hmm. a little contradiction from her federal trial california attorney judge evel j younger said that if there was a double standard for the wealthy it was the opposite of what was generally believed and that hearst had received a stiffer sentence than a person of lesser means might have he said that she had no legal brainwashing defense but pointed out to the events had started with her being kidnapped. Patricia Hearst's bail was revoked in May 1978 when all of her appeals failed and the Supreme Court declined to hear her case. The prison took no special security measures for her safety until she found a dead rat on her bunk on the day when William and Emily Harris were arraigned for her abduction. The Harrises were convicted on a simple kidnapping charge as opposed to the more serious kidnapping for ransom or kidnapping with bodily injury, and they were released after serving a total of eight years each, which is really interesting to me that she got 35 and they only got eight. No, she only got seven. Oh, I thought that she got 35 for the bank robbery. No, she got, she was, the, the judge sentenced her to 35, but held off oh, for the right. final okay. sentencing. Okay, gotcha. And she, so she only got seven. Okay. Representative Leo Ryan was collecting signatures on a petition for Hearst's release several weeks before he was murdered while visiting the Jonestown settlement in Guyana. So there are so many, like, dovetails between things here. Yeah. Actor John Wayne spoke after the John's, Jonestown cult death, deaths. Man, can't talk today. Pointing out that people had accepted that Jim Jones had brainwashed 900 individuals into mass suicide but would not accept that the SLA could have brainwashed a kidnapped teenage girl. Good point, Duke. President Jimmy Carter commuted her federal sentence to the 22 months served, freeing her eight months before she was eligible for her first parole hearing. The 1979 release was under stringent conditions, and she remained on probation for the state sentence on the, on the sporting goods store plea. She recovered full civil rights when President Bill Clinton granted her a pardon on January 20th, 2001, his last day in office. Oh, that, that happens. Yeah, on their last day, they do all these yeah. things. Uh, two months after her release from prison, Hearst married Bernard Lee Shaw, who was a policeman who was part of her security detail during her time on bail. They had two children, Jillian and Lydia Hearst Shaw. Interestingly enough, side note, um, Lydia is actually married to Chris Hardwick, who is the host of Talking Dead, uh, The Walking Dead show, and famous comedian, semi-famous comedian. Hearst became involved in a foundation, Patricia Hearst became involved in a foundation helping children with AIDS and is active in other charities and fundraising activities. So, complicated story right here. Very complicated. But with this, we've all heard the term the Stockholm Syndrome. Mm -hmm. So we got to ask, what about the Stockholm Syndrome? The Stockholm Syndrome is a term coined only two years before her arrest when four Swedish bank workers were held hostages for six days and came to the side of their captors. Keep in mind, the Stockholm Syndrome is, a, is different than brainwashing. While the jury that convicted her didn't buy the brainwashing theory many Americans did and considered her seven-year prison sentence as an injustice. But just as some were reluctant to believe that Hearst had been brainwashed, 
Not everyone agrees that the Stockholm Syndrome is real. There is no standard criteria by which to identify the disorder. It isn't included in psychiatry's main diagnostic manual. Uh, critics insist it's largely a figment of the media's imagination. And while many psychologists can explain it, why it might happen, crisis negotiators even encourage it to some extent, since it gives captives a better chance of surviving. Stockholm Syndrome seems to be more the exception than the rule among kidnapping victims. A 2007 FBI report per Time magazine found that 73% of captives display no affection for their abductors. So that means 27% do. So the standard of proof in a trial to be found guilty here in America is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So I guess Stockholm Syndrome, like brainwashing, is not an insanity defense. So if you're interested, I just did a quick search. Um, I think those of you who have listened for a while know that I'm working on a medical coding certification. So I looked it up to see if that is something, Stockholm Syndrome is recognized by anybody in the medical coding community. You did that while I was talking? I did. Um, it is You're going to be an awesome not, coder, honey. I'm going to be an awesome what? Coder, honey. I, I am. It is not, question mark. Um, if you look up ICD-10, which is the coding manual for Stockholm Syndrome, it says PTSD, it directs you to PTSD. So there is no actual code, medical code for Stockholm Syndrome. So that's not something that's actually treated in and of itself. But your PTSD, PTSD. Yeah, I imagine PTSD is treated. Just as complicated this story is, I bet there's psychiatric oh, there's so many probably. Right yeah. yeah. Okay. So... There are just so many questions with this. Did Patty did Patty get a good defense from F. Lee Bailey? Now, I'm going to think about this before you hire him to defend me. Yeah. But why did he put her on the stand and do that? I mean, that was questioned by... I think F. Lee Bailey especially seems to be... Uh, I mean, he was a high-profile, high-priced L.A. attorney. I... <laughs> Not knowing, not following Effie Bailey's career, I suspect that he probably is very self-confident and very self-assured, and that is probably why he put her on the stand. Because well, he's he, not infallible. He's not. But he lost I, this trial. He did, but I think that he probably thought that he could. He's saying he's fooling himself. Eh, I mean, I didn't say that. You said that, but no, I asked. <laughs> but I think that. Um, I, I don't I think that she could have done better on her lawyer. Well, maybe he was young and inexperienced at the time. No, he do, was. Do, like, you, do you think she got a fair trial from the trial judge? No, that I don't. I mean, the guy was apparently falling asleep and made a lot of rulings and, and introduced a lot was, of evidence that had nothing to do with the trial. Right, and he had close personal connections with members of the prosecutorial team. I do not think that she got a fair trial. However, I also don't think that she was. I, I think that she was guilty to some degree. I don't know. Because of what I mentioned, like I, she didn't, didn't try to get away. And this is not, this is not over like 10, 12 years. We're talking months here. Well, this is hindsight for us right there. I could see how she could be so, she's 19, 20 years old. I can understand how she's afraid and under the threat of death. How how she could do this. I And it's probably, I'm sure it's a personal thing. It is a personality thing. But you know who I kept thinking of when, I, when we were researching this? No. Was Elizabeth Smart. Elizabeth Smart was a, for those of you who don't know, um, she also wrote a really good autobiography. I forget what it's called, but you should read it. Um, she was kidnapped out of her bed while she was sleeping one night. And she was kept for like a long time. Um, before she was able to escape and she like escaped as soon as she could. Okay. But you can't compare two different people. These are no, two different and, people. And that's so what you I'm can't, saying. you like, can't you know, do that. That's hard because, because you do something you're like, yeah. And so, yeah. Yeah. So, and I suspect that she, I don't know. It's, I suspect that Patricia Hearst was probably super sheltered to some extent growing up in a very, you know, she went to the best private schools and she probably was pretty sheltered from the outside world. 
aside from, you know, her, her rich friends and, and, you know, and so maybe this was probably, I would think that this is probably super exciting for her. And it's probably her brain well, is just totally. Like, but remember, the FBI, the video showed them pointing guns at her to keep her, what appeared to be to keep her in line. But she was out on bail, and she no, not when she robbed. No, the bank. I know. But then later, she was still she was out on bail and still hanging out with these people. Her good, dad. Good point. Her dad hired. How many bodyguards? Like 12 bodyguards or something to guard her at some point? Did we? I don't know so how many. She was out on bail. This was after her kidnapping. Her dad could have hired basically high priced babysitters for her, and he, she still chose to affiliate with these people. That's a good point right there. So, do you think she was treated differently because of her family family's money? Was she treated more harshly by the courts? By the sentencing, you know, there's yeah, some opinion, you, you know, you know, generally we think that because she had money, she was given preferential treatment, but it appears in this she, case, she was her money, her, well, yeah, when she was pardoned and, and all of that yeah. by the, by Clinton and Carter, Carter, President Carter. Not Judge Carter, but Car- President, President Carter. President Carter commuted her sentence and uh, President Clinton Pardoned her. So there was definitely privilege right there. But what I'm talking about is during during the trial. During the trial, it, it appears that her money that, that was held against her and she was treated maybe a little bit more harshly yeah, the, than the Judge the, Carter was a little salty. Yeah, maybe there and yeah. with so many ties in this, you know, with Effley Bailey and the the congressman. Right. There's just so many twists that, you know, maybe the judge had a thing. Against the family. Or maybe the judge had a thing against F. Lee Bailey. Like, if you hire a high-profile defense attorney, then you're taking it kind of into your own hands that the judge is going to respect that high-profile defense attorney, and that may not always be the case. And, you know, this is pure speculation, but maybe in, you know, the Hearst newspapers, maybe they had printed stuff that wasn't favorable favorable to the judge. That that's he took, true. They could have endorsed know, that's a pure, different judge or something. That's, that's pure speculation. There, that's a I'm good just point, saying though. there's so many twists to this story that it's 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 right? a complicated story. Well, and the Hearst newspapers, like we mentioned up top, is that they were uh, you know, they yellow journalism, which is you know, ties into media literacy yeah. and all of that kind of stuff. Maybe the judge you know, I don't know personally if the Hearst newspapers were liberal or conservative, but maybe the judge was the opposite. Yeah. And so it would be akin to... He maybe to had a, an a, axe to grind with him. Yeah, it would be akin to like a liberal judge who was judging somebody's kid who, like a like Rupert Murdoch on Fox News, maybe judging like their kid. And the judge was super like liberal. If, like if Nancy Pelosi was a judge and Donald Trump was on trial. Yeah, something yeah, some, something, something like, that. like that. Yeah. Okay. So that is political as we're going to get with this. And that was just a joke. So, <laughs> so anyway. There's a lot. I would love to hear what you guys have to say. Well, on the bright side out of all this, Patricia Hearst has turned her life around and she appears has. to be doing good work yep. with children with AIDS and doing well and doing good things with her money. Yep. So so, so good on her for for turning everything around. And that wraps up this episode of... Patricia Hurst. Yeah. And all that good stuff. So, Kim, yeah. how do people get hold of us? You can find us on all the socials. On Twitter, we are at A Lost Hour. That's also our Gmail, A Lost Hour at gmail.com. Or you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at An Hour of Your Life. If you want to recommend us to somebody, you can tell your and your friends say, Well, how do you get hold of, uh, how do you listen to An Hour of Your Life? You can, you can say, say, You can talk to Alexa. You can talk to, I'm afraid to say this because... Because she's gonna, listening? Yeah, because she's listening. S-I-R-I? You can, you can ask <laughs> S-I-R-I. You know, I'm going to check it here. You can, you can ask Siri to play an Hour of Your Life podcast. Oh, I heard Alexa in the other and room. Alexa in the other <laughs> room, in the room, room. So. Or, or you can tell them, you know, uh, an Hour of Your Life is so popular and so famous that you can find them on all the platforms, even the little ones. Yes. We're really not famous, yeah. but but you can tell them that and make you can us tell feel them important. That make us feel important. So, anything else? I don't think so. 
everybody okay. uh, stay safe. Wear your masks. Um, you know, good luck. At, uh, p- please try to shop small as much as you can when you're doing your Christmas purchasing because your local retailers definitely need it and appreciate it. And if you've made it safe this far from COVID, keep doing what you're doing. Yep. And, you know, we, we hope you're listening with us in a couple months when all this happens. Ooh, I don't want to get that dark and dreary with it. Yeah. So just stay safe. As always, we are open to suggestions for shows. We would love to hear that. Uh, I don't know if we have a, a Christmas episode in the until yet. No. We've really been talking about it. If there's something in particular that you want us to talk about for our special Christmas episode, it's coming up. So shoot us an email. What do you want us to cover for Christmas? All right. So... From our studios in Sugar Creek Township, Ohio. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources this week include Wikipedia, Investopedia, The Daily Californian, History.com, FBI.gov, and Time Magazine.